Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio, Thursday, March 28th, 2013, and you're listening to The Mind Whisperer with Michael Horton. On today's program, we discuss something very timely. We're looking at where does hate come from? In the news right now, the Supreme Court of the United States is actively debating the issue of same-sex marriage via the Proposition 8 uh, statute uh, in California and how it applies to constitutional law in the United States, torts law in the United States, and um, the Defense of Marriage Act. But really what we're looking at is that news item in the context of the psychological and spiritual underpinnings of, of hate and where it comes from and how we can understand and work with this uh, this form of aggression in the mind. So let's jump right in today. I'm your host, Michael Gordon, and I'm pleased to be hosting you today on the program. If you haven't tuned in before, we are a program that airs weekly from on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 10 a.m. Pacific, and all of our programs are archived on Blog Talk Radio, so you can always go back and listen to the archive programs, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the mind whisperer, all one word. And our Twitter and Facebook feeds are also linked there, and I really encourage you to um, to join the Facebook page and also the Twitter account. Uh, it really helps get the word out. So let's get right to the topic today. And as I said, in the Supreme Court in the United States right now, they are deliberating on well, not deliberating, they're actually just hearing just arguments about uh, the Defense of Marriage Act and, and how it relates to the constitutionality of Proposition 8 in California, which would have uh, temporarily um, allowed for or disallowed uh, same-sex marriage in that state. So without getting into the political nature of that debate, um, it is an argument of constitutionality and and um, rights under the law that uh, do gays and lesbians and uh, transgender people have the right under the law just as much as heterosexual couples do to engage in a, in uh, in wedlock and as it applies to federal law um, even though gay marriage may be allowed uh, does that entitle the spouses to um, benefits to federal benefits. So that's the, con- the political context. And f- for our purposes today, we're really looking at why is this a debate? Why is this even in the news? Why do we have to have anti-hate laws? Why do we have to have special hate crimes units? Why is there terrorism in the world? And we can look at these things sociologically and look at the underpinnings of um, uh, how these violent crimes and you know, uh, targeted crimes occur sociologically and look at criminality and criminology, but, you know, really not getting to the heart of the issue. Those are symptoms of the values of society and the conditions that we've created, but they come from 
the workings of of mind because everything comes from working workings of the mind laws are created by the mind society is a function of of how we are treating one another an expression of our values and how people are functioning psychologically as much as they are or spiritually as much as they are um within the realm of of laws and um you know, being legal, law-abiding citizens. So you, these are things that you ne- can't necessarily legislate. Legislation is about creating order to try and create just society, but just society really is going to be the extension of how well people are operating individually and what they're motivated by from a natural sense of uh, interdependence. So where does hate come from? There's some very interesting research that's come out recently and you know, not to put too much of a political spin on it, but let's just talk about intolerance. Let's just talk about um, conservative thinking. And you know, you could look across the political spectrum, and there are people who are left of center who can be very conservative in other ways, not necessarily in terms of um, civil liberties or uh, the rights of unions or uh, the issue of same-sex marriage. But there may be other aspects of con- conservatism there. But generally speaking, what this research shows is that. The brains of people who are liberal and conservative are functioning in a different capacity. And really what it is is people who have a liberal point of view tend to have more flexible, open-minded approaches to to issues and to um, evaluating issues. And people who have a much more conservative point of view tend to have very rigid thinking. And that's not to say that people aren't entitled to those views or that they're inherently wrong, but there's something about those uh, views that tend to restrict the rights of others or tend to try and be more libertarian in terms of, um, for example, um, restricting uh, regulation. And um, that somehow anything that resembles socialism that's, again, focusing on interdependence and the benefit of all is limiting the rights of the individual. And the rights of the individual should be uh, supersede everything. And this is a very Western point of view, in fact. And again, this is not an argument against individual liberty or freedom. It's just to show that uh, the science shows us that rigid thinking uh, is really associated with very, very um, strong conservative views and values. And we can also look at sort of the onslaught of this anti-scientific, very ideologically driven agenda uh, in Canada where I live with uh, uh, Stephen Harper and his um, conservative party. And in the United States, the Tea Party, for example, is very ideologically driven in terms of religion and and those religious values. And again, everyone's entitled to their point of view. But we, you know, when it comes to making laws and such, where you have to benefit um, the rights and freedoms of everybody. So that's one explanation, is that there is a kind of rigidity there, and there's a lot that I can say about how that rigidity forms. Uh, Typically, when you see mental disorders of personality disorder type, there's uh, issues with attachment early in life. Um, There may be neglect, abandonment, and we have to adapt to those early conditions, and some people can adapt very negatively and become very averse to attachment with other people or have a sense of entitlement in sort of a narcissistic kind of way. Um, and I tend to think that the most extreme proponents of 
uh, this kind of free market capitalism have that kind of pronounced sense of um, it's everyone for themselves. And this is a very destructive point of view um, because you can look at it from a very scientific, again, um, methodical uh, point of inquiry in terms of political economy and look at the side effects of that political uh, economic system and that it sort of requires there to be this sort of permanent underclass. And so there's a sort of intolerance that's built up there and, and a justification for that because um, some people are, you know, are, are just better at pulling up their bootstraps somehow and other people failed. Well, that doesn't account for um, the famous quote that, you know, you can look at the development of any civilization by how it treats its um, most vulnerable citizens. I believe that was Gandhi. Someone can correct me if it's not. So why would we be driven to have that kind of a system when we when we evolved sociopolitically out of um, more agrarian economies and more you know communal um, you know tri tribal type um, village systems of organization that were interdependent and there's a very interesting thing about how human uh, physiology and brain physiology developed and human consciousness um, that we can look at uh, in higher primates and they've discovered that in higher primates for example um, that their evolved um, neocortex much like ours um, was able to develop because of increased social organization around um, caretaking for the young so as other members of the um, clan or the or the tribe of say chimpanzees or other hybrid primates were more involved and created more of an elaborate social system where they were protecting the whole group. It allows more safety and more time for gestation and for childbearing or for offspring, rearing offspring. And so that allows a longer gestation period, which in increases um, you know, how big the, br the brain evolves and grows over a longer period of time, more how more complex it is. And of course, all the attachments and the safety and um, involvement of everyone in the group to nurture that those offspring and help them again um, develop more social and emotional skills um, in a more complex way. So this is, a, you know, if you take that model and look at human beings, this is how we've evolved as well. Out of more, you know, simple needs of just getting food and shelter and heat and um, to valuing uh, education and as we've gotten more freedoms and more comfort level, we can provide more of these things and have a more evolved society and, and human development and advance our civilization. But there is this inherent problem that if we fall back to the sort of Neolithic brain and mentality, it's me against the world. And the Dalai Lama visited Vancouver in uh, 2006, I believe it was, uh, the the fellow who was moderating the Dalai Lama's uh, final address at the stadium here uh, was his name was Kevin Newman. He was um, an anchor for national news here and Global Network in Canada. And he, to my distaste, um, opened the talk by taking advantage of terrorist attacks that had been in the news and 
said, you know, now more than ever, we need the message of the Dalai Lama. And it seemed a little bit opportunistic to take what the Dalai Lama's message is of human compassion and, and, and make hay out of it politically by saying, you know, these people are bad, and this man is going to tell us what's, what the right way is. I found it a little distasteful. But in his own perfect way, the Dalai Lama addressed the issue. And he, the, the theme of his visit to Vancouver and his talks that year were happiness. And um, the other major theme of that, coincidentally, was he was talking about focusing on early education and mindfulness education with young people, catching young people at a young age and helping them develop this skill of um, intelligence from their heart rather than intellectual intelligence, again, which leaves us prone to these ego-based constructs of I need to be right and the rigid thinking, etc. And so his point was that happiness is a universal desire, that even the most dis disturbed individual, it's important to see them in, in the, under the gaze that they are just like us and they do want happiness. And even a terrorist, he said someone who's become very mischievous, which I found quite cute. Uh, it's not very cute, but it, it is a very endearing way to try and look at it in a human way, that these people have gone awry in their behavior in a very destructive way, but they still have children, they still want children, and they want their children to be happy, and they're fighting for something because they believe it will be for the betterment of their society or their group, and even though that's misguided, there still is something out that we have to recognize that there's something that they want to give themselves happiness. And I thought that that was a very humane way of looking at it rather than and they're taking a very inflexible, antagonistic position to say, these are our enemy. How could they be they're our enemy? They're human beings. They're part of our, our family. And we have to understand the problem and work with the problem if we're going to heal as a, as a human species going forward and continue to evolve, as opposed to splintering further into competition and violence and aggression. So at the heart of all this, really, as we sort of explore it and don't quite have the depth within this program, but in previous programs, I've talked about the ego and what the ego represents. And the ego represents this uh, very over-emphasized uh, and illusory aspect that there is a fixed self. And it's the self that maybe had to adapt and grow to negative conditions in our upbringing. We certainly have a lot of stressors in our society, a very competitive society and one that values uh, our status and our material um, um, acquisition above our human values and how, how we treat each other on a humane level. And you can see that in um, how we treat people, on, again, in the most vulnerable position. Just as an aside there, it's an interesting note, in that same symposium with the Dalai Lama, which he holds uh, frequently, he, he met with social scientists, and, this, and one of the themes was uh, mental health and happiness and uh, you know as a determinant of mental health or mental health as a determinant of happiness and one of these the social scientists was talking about the discrepancy between uh, North America and India for example when it comes to mental illness or, or what he calls mental unwellness and people in, in India are not necessarily castigated and vilified and and, and ostracized um, and 
and even targeted in some ways or, or criminalized for their um, mental disorders. And certainly they're at risk and they um, may languish without treatment or support, but there's not the cultural predisposition to um, set them up as lesser than or somehow um, you know, cast off from society. It's, it's something that's taken more in, as just a, a, a condition, much like any other medical condition. And unlike, the, you know, this is unlike in North America where we have seen, we have, you know, and it's come up in the news recently, that we need to understand these mental disorders and in a more compassionate way because we tend to be very afraid and label these people as crazy and shut them in institutions and they walk among us and some of them are us. And he made a very, very striking and stunning um, uh, suggestion. And it was as follows. He said, if we took all the people who had cancer, okay, in, in, the, city, in the city that you're living in right now, or the closest major city. So I live in Vancouver, BC, the fourth largest city in Canada, I believe, the third largest city. Uh, I think it's the third, fourth largest after Calgary. Maybe wrong there. Um, if you take all the people in your city who had cancer and you put them all on the street because you didn't want to deal with them because they were sick and they had cancer and they're dying anyway, there would be mass outrage. It would be a moral crime and uh, the, the outrage would be unbelievable. There would be a tsunami of public outcry. But somehow it's okay that we do that with our mentally ill and these are family members or extended family members, if you will, of our community. And as a, as a clinical um, psychotherapist, uh, I can tell you there's not that big of gap between some of the more minor mental afflictions and people with expressed mental disorders. And, and if you take the uh, Buddhist psychology approach, you can look at a lot of people's behavior as being an affliction. It's the overattachment to ego. And so I found that a very stunning comparison, and it's, and it's something worth holding in, in mind, that we somehow take one group of sick people and say, that, oh, they need our help, and we raise millions and millions of dollars, and then these other people are somehow uh, not worthy of our attention, or it's not as serious a condition, or it's not, as, um, it's not something that attracts our pulls our, our heartstrings as much. Somehow we don't see it as being as victimizing and involuntary as something like cancer. You would never say to a cancer patient, you know, just get over it. People with mental illness, you know, who have depression, for example, clinical depression or anxiety, um, there still is that idea that somehow it's not real. It doesn't affect them in a real way. It doesn't need real attention. It's not a priority. And these, this is part of this kind of um, survival of the fittest mentality that they just don't make the grade they're being you know not nature is calling them from the herd how far away have we gotten from the basic human uh, capacity instinct for compassion that we, we think anybody within our society is not worthy of love as much as um, someone is in our our own family and that really is the question so really really broad strokes today but it does point to a lot of different aspects of why hate occurs, and in terms of going back to full circle to the discussion of ego, you know, there's a teaching in the Buddhist path 
that says, drive all blame onto the self. This is from the what's called Lojong training or mind training. Drive all blame onto the self. And that doesn't mean you're responsible for the conditions of society, but anything that you outwardly project into the world as resentment, anger, uh, etc., is really the result of operating from a place where you are entitled to something or that um, someone is not doing something for you. And, you know, this is very much what um, John F. Kennedy was saying in his famous inaugural speech where he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And this is the the, the spirit of interdependence, of sort of voluntary compassion and and looking uh, inward and say, what am I, what can I do more? What can I do for you? How are you? And so our biggest obstacle is the ego because the ego is something that is simply just a functionality of personality. The ego is, is, is an aspect of consciousness that says, I have an identity and I know who I am and I can enjoy that and function in the world and develop myself and know what my purpose is and connect with others and experience love and move forward in life and appreciate the whole experience of life. The problem is, is that we become over-identified. We actually solidify that uh, aspect of our consciousness into something that is real and solid and therefore needs to be defended. There's a me that needs to be defended. And we lose track of how precious, precious a gift life is that who are we to try and defend this like a castle because it's not ours. It's going to be over at any moment. And so um, it's sort of like, you know, the joke, which is actually true in my family, and my, one of my grandmothers used to put plastic on the furniture. I mean, how ridiculous is that? What's the point of protecting your furniture forever from what? From people using it and enjoying it and feeling the upholstery and saying how nice it is? It's almost like living in a museum. You never actually get to live. You're so protective of the idea of what you have. And really, that's, that is, in a way, how we live life. We cover ourselves over in plastic. We cover our lives over in plastic. And we attach to the things in our lives. We live in a world of plastic. And we, are, we buffer ourselves from the, what, what is just the, the fear of reality. And the rea- that reality, again, from the Buddhist teaching is, and what we're afraid of, is impermanence. That we really have no control over life or death or um, sickness or old age, losing people. Um, and the stem of that really is, again, this ego that says, okay, the starter gun's gone off. I got off to a poor start. <laughs> but I'm going to run everybody else down to get where I need to go because it's me against everyone else. And you can see how that starts to search out and will feed on the societal prejudices to uh, to project its own insecurity onto someone else. For example, gays and lesbians or people of different uh, nationalities or ethnicities, um, et cetera, et cetera. It needs a scapegoat. And of course, historically, the probably the most famous example of that would be uh, Nazism in, in Germany. Um, and in fact, the, the Nazi party and you know Hitler's regime 
and all that ideology was based on centuries old uh discrimination and uh symbolism that was used against the Jewish people and of course gypsies but specifically the Jews um through centuries of discrimination against Jews and Jews were ghettoized in western Europe etc cetera, etc cetera. um some of the major cities in Europe for example like Prague um had you know large Jewish ghettos centuries before uh Nazis rose to Ger- in in Germany and so we we this society and the illness of our society is that we thrive on scapegoating. We need an other to uh, to justify our own existence in our own way. And that really is just a mirror of our own mind. That there's aggression in our mind and, and the fear of, the, of, of our own mortality and uh, the insecurity that comes out of being attached to this thing that doesn't exist causes us to need an external enemy. And there's been very, you know, a lot written about this, for example. Because really, in a rational society, in a civil society, why would you need to hold on to so fixed a position? An ideology itself means you're so stuck on an idea that it's more important than relating to other human beings in a compassionate way. And that in itself is pathological. That is actually something that is expressed in um, pathological psychological disorders, sociopathology. Well, that's a lot for today's program. We're running out of time here, even with the time that is allotted. Um, perhaps we'll explore this issue more next week. I hope that our uh, that that the people on the bench of the Supreme Court of the United States and all of those making arguments um, do so remembering these principles and outweigh political expediency and the the tenor of ideology that's prevailing right now in the political world and side on universal human rights and compassion. Well, my name is Michael Gordon. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you are listening into the archive program, uh, appreciate your support. Once again, please do visit the homepage here on Blog Talk Radio forward slash The Mind Whisperer and uh, join our Facebook page. Send us a message open to suggestions for uh, other guests on the program, topics. You can call in at any time on the show uh, when the show is on regardless of the topic. We have a chat forum. We hope you enjoy your day and your long weekend. Wherever you are, whoever you are, be well. (laughs) 